Welcome to Unlock Your Mindset podcast with me, Steve Rawlinson. Get ready to open the door to the world of business, entrepreneurship, and the art of achieving remarkable success. We'll focus on emotional, intellectual, social, and adversity, and how each of these traits are crucial to unlocking your growth mindset. The journey to success starts here, so let's go. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Bill Scott, OBE, Bill Scott's Chief Executive of Wilton Engineering Group, which has achieved unparalleled success specialising in design manufacturing structures for industries including oil and gas, wind and the defence industry. He's got a huge list of personal achievements, including being named Entrepreneur of the Year with the Entrepreneurs Forum, his role as Deputy Lord Lieutenant for North Yorkshire and being awarded an OBE with the Queen's New Year Honours in 2019 for services and engineering services to the offshore wind sector. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you. Luke, I've probably not done you justice there. Do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners and just summarise who you are, what you do, and I guess your journey? Do you want the short version, medium version, or the 10-episode version? I want the best version. The best version. The best version. Okay, I guess uh, the journey started from a work point of view. When I took my first job, which was an apprentice. Okay. So I was an apprentice plater. And I genuinely, I turned up on my first day and uh, I had no idea what an apprentice plater did. So I I got to the office and they said to me, oh, just just go through in the workshop, take the first right and stand there. And the manager, he'd be out sorting the lads out and he'll come to you when he's finished. And I was always told about, you know, going for a long stand. So was this this a long stand thing or go and get a tin of tartan paint and that type of stuff? Anyway, it wasn't. So the introduction was, oh, so you're, you're Billy, are you? Billy, that's what I was yeah. called back in the day. Right, son, come with me. So I was walking with him. He said to me, I bet you hate to think that I'm going to train you and get you sort of ready for work and all that type of stuff. I went, well, that was the general idea. Yeah. So he said, no, no, you're here to make me money. And so I paused. I went, really? He said, yes. So he said, let's do it then. Uh, honestly, I'm rather How old are you at this point? 16. Wow. Yeah, so we literally walk into an engineering manufacturing shop with welding going on, overhead cranes, forklifts going in and out. Literally walked from his office to the shop floor, right? No overalls, no boots, no hard hat, no glasses. And he said, see those beams down there, the, those pipes there? So he picked them up, put them on this stool, slide them up against the backstop, hold it with your left hand, turn that knob, and it's big, massive circular steel saw started turning which he did it first pull it through like this don't look at the sparks and that was my induction how long did you do that for then well that was the apprenticeship was for four years okay but what i'd say to people once i start to learn the basics what i really learned was you were put with other people you had to learn to try and think about what are they going to need next so working with a tradesman, I'm looking what he's going to be doing. I'm thinking he's going to need that level in a minute. Yeah. I go and grab the level. When he starts looking around, I said, here it is. All oh, right, cheers. He's going to want a drill in a minute with a drill bit, six milli or a ten milli drill bit. So I'd hand him the drill bit. Then he'd become useful, you see. Then after I learned that if you can learn to weld, tack weld, then he'd become even more useful. So while he's starting to set something up, you're there to help. And that... That, that was the basic and the fundamental stuff of what I did. But then he also was given a job which there was like numbers off. Mm-hmm. So when I first started, I, I could do like three a day of these things. 
called Shop Blast Hangers, right? And I'm really competitive. And so I was like, I'm like trying to beat myself, a bit like playing golf, trying to beat myself. Yeah. You know, I ended up being able to do like 13 a day. And this was at such a young age as well. It sounds like hard work as well, yeah? Well, it was hard work, but it was really enjoyable. And the turning point for me was when I was 18. The managing director took me out on a job and he said he wanted me to be the managing director of that company one day. And how old were you? 18. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. And what do you think he saw in you then? Um, well, at the, at the interview, I was playing basketball. I used to play basketball okay. at a decent level. And uh, he was a basketball coach. I often tell the story that he I had, I had the ball. He came to get the ball. I leaned back over. He leaned into me. I knew what I was doing. Went round him, underneath the basket, dead cocky, underneath the basket, looked up, spun the ball, hit the backboard and dropped in. As it dropped in, this hand came across and literally chopped me in the neck. I went down like a sack of spuds. And was it him? <laughs> oh, yeah, it was him, yeah. I, I'd have been 16. It was about 34, 35. Wow. Yeah, so then I, I literally chopped in the neck. I jumped back up, grabbed my neck, ran back into defence, defending, holding my neck, played the game, shook hands, never said anything, had a shower, went home. That was it. Then he rang my dad the next day and said, what does your son want to do? He said, why? He said, I've got uh, like an apprenticeship thing going on. Did you on. know what you wanted to do uh, at this point? I think uh, there was a few things really. I really quite like cooking, so I wouldn't mind being a chef. But I'd had a portion of that when I was between 15 and 16 because I, I worked in a, in a hotel. Yeah. And I could see that when you go in a hotel, you're working day shift, night shift, morning shift, you're there for breakfast and all that. And I thought, no, oh, maybe, maybe he's not. So I, went, I actually went for a job as an instrument artificer. Uh, and I went for the interview at ICI because at school the careers were really poor. Yeah. So you're a boy, you'll go to the British Steel or you'll go to ICI. So I went to ICI for a job and the interview was as quick as this. So, son, does your dad work here? Uh, no. Where does he work? He works for British Steel. British Steel? Or oh, what are you doing here? Wow. And that was it. <laughs> so that chop in the neck. And yes. you kind that chop in the neck and you just taking that on the chin and not reacting to that in any kind of negative way pretty much set you up in terms of your change the dynamics of your life and everything. That was it. Well the dynamics were that the same guy on the same day when he took me out on that job to look at it, he said I needed to bring some tools, bring a pad, bring some like string level, all that, all that type of stuff. So we can go and look at this job. I want you to tell me how many man hours it's going to take to manufacture, how many man hours to install, what the materials are. Then he would create the bid, and then if it was successful, I was going to make it and install it. And you were—it's eighteen years. I was old, eighteen years old, but wow. but then this was the defining moment. He, he said, "Oh, I was going to nip into the shop for a can of coke and, and a Mars bar or something. Do you want anything?" And I tapped my, my hand and said, look, I don't think I've got any money on me. He said, it's okay, just, it'll be fine. So I came in with him. He went in. He got two cans of Coke, four candy bars. I said, wow. I said, I'll have just a can of Coke and a Mars bar. And this, this was the defining moment. So he put his hand in his pocket and he wriggled about with his hand in his pocket and he pulled out a wedge, like a, a roll of money, right. which was equivalent probably to my annual salary. And I got back in the car and said, Dick, can I just say what? What is that? What What is that money in your pocket? He said, son, two choices. I'd love you to be the managing director of my business one day, right? You'll have a nice house, a nice life, nice car, or get yourself a couple of dice and throw the dice, start your own business, then you might get one of them. 
and he'd said that to you. That was it, yeah. That was the word. So, 18. So, so after that moment, then, that's obviously something that stuck in your memory. How old were you when you thought, right, because it was straight, you went from that to setting up and No, stopping. no, no, no. So I was 18, when I was 22, stroke 23, I got headhunted mm-hmm. for the first time. Didn't know what a headhunter was. Yeah. Couldn't spell headhunter, right? I started the project. We were building these huge modules for offshore. Yeah. I went offshore, became the superintendent to install those modules at the end of the day. I was then headhunted again and then headhunted again for the third time. And then I was sat brushing my teeth one day when I was 32 years old. and thought, right, I looked at the past history of what I'd done. I had a good balance of manufacturing, managing, health and safety, quality and accounting. It's time to go for myself. Did you always know from, or let me rephrase that, when did you know that you were going to set up on your own and and build something? In that car. When that chap turned around and said, you can either work for somebody and have a nice house. Yeah. Wow. And so you do that at 32. Yeah. Tell us about that moment. 32, had to, went to three banks with the business plan. They all said it was an amazing business plan, but it was too aggressive. It'd never work. So all three major banks. So all three of them basically said, go back and cut it in half, then come back and see us. But in my head, it already started. So I went to see the Yorkshire Bank, and the guy says to me, I love this. He said, "Uh, do you really want to do it, don't you? I was going, yeah, yeah. He was pulling me in on his string, you know. And he said, enough to give me a house. So I did that. And, was, I'd, I'd and take, you put your house on the line as a personal guarantee. Yeah, so yeah. I'd, I'd uh, start with, with a partner called Steve Glenn. So we both had to put our houses up on the line. It's nerve-wracking when you do that, you know. I didn't, I didn't, I, I was just fully confident that it was going to be okay. Because in your I, mind. Never, exactly. never for a second did I think I was ever, ever going to get called on. Yeah, I'm exactly the same when I sit and see the growth of my company and people turn around and say, oh, you've got to put this PG and that PG. I never think about it. I just go, that's fine, put it on, it's fine. I'll do that personal guarantee. Because if you believe in yourself and you believe in your purpose and you believe in what you're trying to achieve, then you'll achieve it, no matter what, really. So you put your house on the line and you set up Wilton Engineering and it just flourishes. But in terms of the, what I'm trying to get through to the listeners is, that mindset that you have when you're trying to scale and grow something, that adversity that comes, because people can see the love story now and see the the amazing company and the achievements that you've done, but it's never always been that easy. How do you deal with adversity and stress as you're trying to build something? I'm really fortunate, so I never have stress. So in fact, the more adverse it becomes, Mm -hmm. the more focused I become. So if you were on a boat and it was unfortunately sinking, you want to be around me because I'm literally looking at getting off that boat. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, you know, we've had so many things over the years that you can't legislate for. Yeah. I mean, COVID for a lot of people would have hit a lot of companies. Yeah. And, you know, these things come at you and you just got to deal with them. Yeah. Where's that come from, though, Bill? Where's that, where's that kind of resilience and that tenacity come from? I think it's built up from over the years. So yeah. when we first started, like, say, the bank said it wouldn't work, Actually, when the Yorkshire Bank actually believed in us and gave us that money to start off with, bizarrely, we never used that money. Rolled forward 11 years, and the bank manager said to us, you are the worst company we've got. I said, why is that? He said, you've never borrowed a penny. You've you've managed your cash, you've worked with your clients, 
to be able to manage your cash flow. You've never been overdrawn for 11 years. He said, I've never seen anything like that. It's amazing. But then at that point, we looked at buying our first facility. Yeah. And then I went to the bank for the money. They wouldn't give me the money. They'd give me half of the money. So then we had to try and find somewhere else, which we managed to do. Mm -hmm. But there have been so many things for big projects that we've done where clients didn't want to pay us the last lump of money or, you know, always they wanted to go halves. So if it was 100 quid and it was 50 quid, you wouldn't mind. Yeah. When it's 4 million and they want to pay you two, or if it's 4 million, they want to pay you 90,000. This is why it's so important for the listeners because you don't really know, like, when you're growing or scaling something, everybody gets to that situation where a client wants to maybe negotiate when it's towards the end of the project. Some people would buckle at that and be like, oh, my God, like, this is going to be so dreadful. It's just one of them things, isn't it, where if you can deal with adversity, then I believe you can push through absolutely anything. We had um, the 2014 15 mm-hmm. oil and gas crash, so the business was 100% oil and gas. Wow. And I was fortunate enough to be in amongst the CEOs from BP, Shell, Talisman, Total, yeah. all those types of companies. And I would go along for a, an annual meeting with them as part of a fabricators forum. So we were one of the seven biggest fabricators in the country. We used to get to see all these CEOs at once. We used to talk to Turkey about what was going on in the oil and gas industry. I went there once and it was just different. That's all I can say. So when I walked in, it was a cold atmosphere and it was just different from all the other meetings I'd been to. And I thought, my stomach, my eyes, my ears, everything telling me something's going on. You know, and I watched all these people looking at each other, flicking eyes at each other, like shaking heads when someone was trying to say something and he shouldn't have been saying. And I, I convinced myself that there was something big, major that was going to be going down. Yeah. So that day, I was supposed to fly home from Aberdeen. I phoned my PA. I said, look, can you just cancel the flight before I get on it? I'll always use it again. I'm going to jump on the train. She said, but it's a five-hour journey. Why would you want to do that? I said, I've seen something, listened to something. I need to get my head round it. I need to come up with a decision. So I sat on the train and I had my little black book here and I wrote loads of different things that I'd listened to. And by the time I got off, I'd realised that there was going to be a huge crash in the oil and gas industry. And I'd written part of a solution of how we were going to get out of it. Off that five-hour train Off journey. Off that five-hour train journey. And I went back. And imagine me walking back into my office. Morning, Bill. Everything all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you get everybody together? FD, logistics guy, MD, all your management team. Can you mm-hmm. go all come into the boardroom? Right, now you lot are going to think I'm absolutely nutty when I tell you. But this could be the worst we've ever seen coming at us. And um, I always remember the bank manager saying to me, banks don't like surprises. So I rang the bank manager, who was fantastic. She was a lovely, lovely person. And she also brought the regional director with her and sat down and explained what was going on. They said, well, with oil and gas, it's $150 a barrel, Bill. I said, I know. But I've just what I've seen and what I've heard and what my stomach's telling me, Right. If I don't get this right, this could wipe our company out. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is I've asked all these questions of all of our staff as to where we are. What is our long term prospect? Actually, what we hadn't noticed over the last six months, things have been deteriorating in terms of orders. 
So when I sort of got under the skin of it all, it became, well, actually, as you know now, it became the worst. The worst. It was like a roller coaster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, literally, it went from being at 150. I remember being 150, and I think I remember reading somewhere. It was cheaper to buy a barrel of oil than it was to buy a, a bucket of KFC. Yeah, yeah. I think it went down to like $20. Yeah, $20, a barrel, yeah. yeah. Crazy. So, so then six months later, our regional bank manager ran me up and said, how the hell did you, did know, you know that? that? How did you know that? And did you, did, that's just that natural gut feeling, isn't it? That I believe entrepreneurs have that, where they can see things two, three steps in mm. front before anyone else, because that is essentially yeah. what you have to do as well, the business Well, just, not just that, so then you've got to deal with that. Yeah. There's a sequence of, of dealing with that problem, but you can't just focus on that. So when I said, look, you know, right, of the senior management team, I gave them tasks to work on what they had to do, give them a list of things that to do, to make it easier for the business. Because yeah. if we didn't do that, then we wouldn't be here in six months' See, time. Again, so then I said, I've got to go out now and find another another industry. Mm -hmm. So I managed to get myself over to Germany, sat down with a, a CEO of a, of a large company. They'd just spent 350 million on their facility, but they were struggling building the things that they were doing. And what industry? It was in the wind industry. Right. So we were one of the first adopters of that wind industry. So gets across to, to Germany. He'd built two jobs. This company built two jobs and they'd lost money on both jobs. Then I said, right, can I just throw something in here? You're really good at one thing. Where I think you're failing is on this part. Now, if you do what you're good at, the part that you're failing on is that's what we're good at. Yeah. If you do what you're good at, we'll do what we're good at. So you throw them over the fence. I know they're coming from Germany, but if you throw them over the fence, we will then deal with everything after that. So you diversified your business? Completely. Yeah. Switched from building one-off structures for the North Sea oil and gas industry to multiple numbers off, which, again, you've got to use your change yeah, of mindset. Yeah, so what happened? The project was delivered on time, best in class. They made money, we made money. And the rest is history because now you diversified across oil and gas, wind and defence rather than just being 100% focused sure. in oil and gas so let me ask you this then in terms of your career amazing story and I'm sure my listeners would definitely get something from that in terms of being able to deal with diversity being able to deal with spotting opportunities but also looking ahead and seeing what storms are potentially coming what achievements are you most proud of in your career I think the the first thing that I could maybe say is when I got awarded the Northeast Business Executive of the Year Award yeah yeah, I was quite a, quite a shock that. What year was that? I think that was 2012. Okay. And I, I remember sitting in the room and looking at the scroll of all of the past winners and, you know, this, like Sir John Hall and people like that, you know, I mean, big, big players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And me sat there thinking, my God, how could that be me? You know, I, I just remember thinking that. And then when they said the winner, they announced the winner there and then, I think my knees went. But then after that, even more awards come. I mean, getting awarded an OBE. What, what, yeah. was, what was that like? Yeah, well, that was that was amazing. I had no idea. It came through in a brown envelope. Right. Looked a bit like a speeding ticket. Uh -huh. Soaking wet, the postman obviously rolled one of the, the magazine things up, stuck it in there, left the post box as it's a top opener. The OBE letter was inside the post box. It was ringing wet, opened it up, peeled off the, the logo. Right on the piece of paper, so I had to read it twice to understand what it was. Uh -huh. And then when I realised it was an OBA, I was, I was blown away. I mean, again, some amazing achievements throughout yeah. your career. 
in terms of what we're trying to do here with Unlock Your Mindset is really get under the skin and inside the brain of, of successful people and what drives them. In terms of your drivers and your motivations from a young age to now, what motivates you? What drives you, Bill? Well, I get up to bed every morning and I, I just look forward to going to work. Yeah. I really enjoy going to work. I enjoy the camaraderie of it. Mm. I enjoy the success of being able to produce, you know, large, complicated structures, phenomenal, world-class, you know, the world first. We've got, must be half a dozen, I would think. So I love all of that. I work with the, the people I work with, and the way I look at it is that I'm not a boss. I don't like being called boss, by the way. Mm -hmm. So I might be CEO, but I'm just one part of the jigsaw. You know, and then the jigsaw has lots of parts in it. You know, we have just nearly 400 people now. So it's 400 pieces of jigsaw. And from the minute you come onto our facility, everybody's important. Everybody has something to do. Like when you arrive, you speak to Trevor and security gate. Now, if he doesn't do his job right and send them to the right place, the whole thing could turn into right to a bit of a dynamite, you know. Yeah. And then the person comes to the office, then the receptionist then d diverts them again, and then he said, you know, the whole thing, when, when I go home on a night, I'm quite often last out. So I have a good chat with the cleaners. Yeah. You know, the cleaners by name. Every single person has an important job. Look, you've had an um, I mean, Wilton Engineering, everybody knows them in the northeast and uh, even further afield, worldwide. So, you know, I guess in terms of what keeps you there and what keeps your driving, is there any plans for you know, hang up your boots and... Well, what I've had to do is, so during COVID, uh, pre-COVID, mm -hmm. I was doing a lot of travelling. I was in Norway and Germany and Italy and all, all sorts of yeah. different places. And then when COVID happened, obviously you weren't able to do that. So what I'd had to do at that, that point, so I got a really good management team. And so I learned I had to give over the reins to actually manage the manufacturing, which is what I used to really enjoy doing. But I learned that I had to do that to, for the business to grow and move on. So I knew what my role was. My role was to, to create new relationships, new markets, all that type of thing. Now, once COVID came, that just stopped. Mm -hmm. Now, the easiest thing was for me to go and jump back straight downstairs and go, right, guys, what are we doing? You know, but that was a real strong decision that I didn't do that okay. because they're capable of that. They don't need me to do that. And for me to go down there might have been a hindrance, right? So don't get me wrong, I get involved on a daily basis in, in an awful lot of things, but I, I try my damnedest not to become the decision maker in those instances. And I, I now I see myself a bit more of a visionary you know, looking forward. I always look. I'm the one that's looking one, two, three years forward. Yeah. You know. And what's your aspirations now then in terms of where the business is going and, and what's next? Well, where we are at the moment, we are in... Well, can I just say one thing first? So one of the most important things that we've decided to do as a business is we decided to work for people that we want to work with. Mm -hmm. It's a really strong thing to do so yes you can work for people that don't value what you do mm -hmm. you know you can build the biggest towers in the world but if you're not valued by your client yeah. and it's a fight 
what's the point? I, you know, I completely agree. Every job we've done, which has been like best in class, really, really world leading, has been when we've worked as a partnership. Mm-hmm. And that's a true partnership. And we've created that with people within the defence industry. Okay. You know, it's obviously it's tough because there's some of the the dimensions that we're working to, they really are quite demanding, but that that's fine. Our men are good, they're good, they're qualified, they can work to those tolerances. But the difference is is if they like what you're doing and you you, you like what they're doing and you're working together, that's a big plus. Right. So for me, what we've done is we've been working with the defence industry. We're at a point now where we're looking to create something that would probably give us 10 years worth of work mm-hmm. going forward. And the second part of that would be a, a project, which is the project itself would be 40 years. Wow. So, you know, what do I want or what I like is, cause I'm 62 now, so obviously I'm coming to get to the end of the career. So what I would like to do is to leave a legacy. I'm very passionate about apprenticeships yeah. and I'd love to see thousands more apprenticeships go through our facility. If we can unlock these large projects with the defence industry and that can happen and that legacy carries on, that's what I would really like. And in terms of, I guess, your aspirations where you say you, you feel like you're coming towards the end of your career, I mean, you know, I think people like you don't ever come to the end of the career, but there might be a time where you go, I've got to, you know, I can't be doing the, the hours that I'm doing nowadays. What does that look like in your mind in terms of building a succession plan and what happens to in, into Wilton? Well, in, so the succession plan's in, it's okay. done. So the succession Amazing. plan's there, it's already there. So we went away to the lakes, then we sat down, we talked about the future and what everybody's roles and responsibilities yeah. are. And I think it's really important to tell people, say to people, who is, like, okay, so Steve, you're, you're the managing director. Who's your next managing director? Okay. You know, Christine, you're the FD. Who's coming up behind you? Because I think you need to do it. Because what happens is time goes. Time flies. I was 32. I'm now 62. It seems as though it's been like two or three years, not yeah. not nearly 30 years. Time flies when you're having fun. Doesn't it? it just, yeah. Talking about age, let's go back to Bill Scott. 10, no, 13 years old. You walk in a room and there he is sitting on the bed. Did you envisage at 13 that you would be where you are today in your career? No. At 13... If you could go back to that time, what did you think um, your life would look So at 13, I, I used to love sport. Yeah. So I trials for Middlesbrough boys. I played basketball. Our uh, basketball coach was the England basketball coach. So I remember a ball was in the middle of the, of the court. He put five balls in the middle of the court. He sent five lads to run, get the ball. Is that, is, this was it. Go and get the ball, put it in the net. Yeah. That was it, right? So I was probably one of the fastest runners in the school. So I got the ball first, bounced the ball towards the basket, and then up, hit the black square in the backboard, and he went in. And he blew his whistle, and he said, everybody stop, stop. Have you played basketball before? No. Never, no. You've just done something called a layup. Really? He said, can you just do what you did then again? Well, what did I do? Well, put the ball in the net. So I did it again. He said, that is a, that is a layup, right? Mm-hmm. 
So I used to enjoy all sorts. I was I, I did the hundred meters, two hundred meters. Did you think you would make a career out of sport? No, I knew I wasn't good enough. Four hundred meters, I was a good second. You know, four hundred meters, long jump, high jump, hurdles. Honestly, I used to do all sorts of different sports. So all I used to think about when I was at school was what time's the bell going to go so I can go out and play football, basketball, tennis, whatever it was. Yeah, that was it. I wonder if. Your ability to deal with adversity comes from being heavily involved in sports as a teenager, because I'm guessing you didn't win every game. Well, key thing with me, if you've beaten me, you've worked really hard. Yeah. I am the most competitive person Still ever. now? Oh, God, yeah. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. So when I am beaten, I would applaud the person that's beaten me, because yeah. I know they've worked hard. Where does that competitive streak come from in you? I th- I've all, well... It, this my dad thinks. Right. So I was born three months early. Okay. Two pound baby. Okay. In 1962. Wow. It wasn't all the palaver they've got now to be able mm-hmm. to put them into these incubators and everything. I was. I did go into hospital. I was in hospital. Apparently, I only found this out a few years ago. I was in hospital for the first three years. So everybody said, "Oh, he's a little fighter." So whether it, that, I don't. I have no idea. But. It's just I've naturally I've always there. been competitive. Now, my grandkids are competitive. My kids are competitive. Uh-huh. You know, and they, they all look at me and go, it's you. Well, you know, it, it clearly will be because, mm. you know, your yeah. children and your grandkids have obviously seen dad and granddad being this really competitive person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you do end up following the traits of people that you're surrounded by, I guess, don't you? Yeah. In terms of what advice you would give yourself at, say, 13, 14, what advice would you give yourself? Well, if I was going to do something different, I think I was in the top set at school, but I always remember struggling on a few things like maths and stuff like that. So back in the day, only the brightest ones went to university. Yeah. You didn't go uni, no? No, 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 no. There was no chance of me going to university, not even college. Even then, you know, getting to college wasn't easy. Yeah. So I'd sort of set my mind that I wouldn't go to college, wouldn't go to university. I would need to do something like an apprenticeship or go in the Army, Navy or the Air Force. And just become the best at? Just be the best I can be, yeah. So for the listeners again, to define your mindset, if we focused it across that emotional intelligence and that ability to deal with adversity and whatnot, in terms of creating that level of success that you've had, where do you think that's come from, from your mindset? I think it's... Me being me, mm-hmm. so I'm just a very open, honest person. Yeah. I treat everybody, I got wrong for this, by the way, this statement a few months ago. I treat everybody in a situation where if it's not good enough for me, it's not good enough for them. That's a good trait. Well, I thought it was, but apparently it's not. So You said it wasn't? Well, somebody said, that, well, who are you to say what's good and what's bad? Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, and, and actually when I, step, when, I, when I stepped away from her, I thought, do you know what, she is right. You know, when, you, when you break it down, no, 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 <laughs> no. I was, I was on a panel, and right. uh, and she, that's what she said. But when I thought about it, I think she's right. But what I mean by that is, I'll do the best for everybody. Yeah. You know, I do a lot for charity. I don't know all the names of the people on the shop floor, which is a bit of a sad thing. I did ask for overalls with names on, so that everybody knows each other. And I think, I think it's um, just. Being able to just be honest and open with yourself. I remember one guy who worked with us for seven years and he came, he said, can I have a chat? He said, look, I've been offered a job. I'm away. 
I said, oh, really? I said, I said it's a real shame to see you go because, you know, you, you worked on the shop floor, but it's a key part of the, of the jigsaw type thing. And he said, well, my wife, she's really sad that I'm leaving. She said, because for her, it's been the best seven years of her life because uh-huh. I've been more relaxed working here than anywhere else. And I don't know what you've got, but if you could put it in a bottle and sell it, you'd make a fortune. Wow. Because I love working here. If you create a winning culture, though, and you have everybody in your business lined up and they understand their accountabilities and you're personal, obviously everybody who knows you will know that you're an absolute gentleman, why would people want to leave you? Because I don't believe people leave businesses. I think they leave their manager. That's what I believe. And that might be your management team or it's not the business. It's lack of motivation or lack of responsibilities and you've not got that in Wilton. You've created an amazing business and it obviously does come down to yourself. And it's interesting that opening up your mindset, it's clear that you have a natural ability to deal with adversity and you have, again, such a high level of emotional intelligence, which has been similar traits to every single guest that we've interviewed. It's not the level of IQ on Unlock Your Mindset. We haven't interviewed any rocket scientists who've got unbelievable IQs. They've got people in their businesses that have got a high level of IQs, but each and every single one of them has an amazing level of AQ and EQ. And that's a really interesting, it's really interesting to think about that. What's next in terms of yourself then, Bill? What's next for for you, for Wilton? Are you going to keep scaling, keep growing? Yeah, we've got some big plans at the moment, some fairly hefty investments, new buildings. We've got the... Haven Hill Shipyard, probably 18 months ago now. That's already full. Are we, yeah, we're doing some work on our keys. We've just got, if these 10-year projects and 40-year projects come off, you know, the level of investments off the scale. Final question from myself then. What tip would you give listeners to create a mindset for success? I think, first of all, you've got to look in the mirror and just, be honest with yourself you know have you got that grit and determination and all of that that's needed to create the business this is before you're starting off right and then if you feel that you have you've got to look at it and it's not a quick fix you've got a lot of effort and time to put into something it's not like a nine to five job you've got to do what you've got to do mm-hmm. if you're in a business and you want to scale up mindset there I would look at it like it's a a marathon or an ultra marathon it's not a 5k or a 10k run yeah. right it's the long game you've got to play but then break it up into manageable pieces yeah. otherwise you'll you know you'll explode trying to get to the end before you you should do yeah what's that one thing in your mind I know that I said last question but I'm, I could sit and talk to you all day what's that one thing in your mind that like just one core ingredient that's allowed you to be successful, do you think? Um, do you know what? I'm going to say something really strange. First word that came to my mind is kindness. Okay. That's not a bad thing, I think. Nice people go for kindness. It's a really good way to end the show, Bill. If people want to reach out to you for mentoring or... Further advice, where can individuals find you? Easiest place is LinkedIn or on Twitter. It's uh, at Bill Scott Wilton for Twitter handle or email. 
Thank you very much for that. Thank you. All the best, Bill. Thanks very much. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks very much for listening to the podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe to Unlock Your Mindset with me, Steve Rawlingson. 